morning, everyone. All right. Well, we are doing a short series this month on the values of Christ Community Church. We started it last week, and we said that uh, values kind of function as a north star or the needle on a compass. They help us focus on the things that are important and keep us from getting distracted on things that are not. So last week, we started with value number one, being gospel-centered. This week, we continue on value number two, being faithful to Scripture. And then next week, making disciples. And then the final week, uh, building the church. Now, in some ways, all churches share the same values. So really what this series is going to do is practically help you to realize why this church might put a particular emphasis on something that, say, church X down the street doesn't focus on as much. Now, values, when they're written well, do two things. They tell you, number one, what you are trying to prevent, and then number two, what you're trying to promote. And if you'll notice the insert you have in your bulletin, our values follow the same pattern. There's a quick kind of summation of how we're going to live in light of that value, a definition of the key word of the value, uh, and then an explanation of it that also includes what the value is going to promote and or defend in that kind of order. So this morning is value number two, being faithful to scripture. So let me put it up on the screen. You have this in your bulletin as well. And it's this, basically, faithful to Scripture, we will live with a focus on truth. The Scripture is that written testimony of God which is authoritative, inerrant, infallible, and thus the trustworthy foundation for a coherent worldview and understanding of reality. Now, wow, that's a mouthful. I barely got that out myself. Let me just take a pause here. If you're in the church, if you're a Christian a while and you've been thinking about Scripture, you've probably heard about two of these words that maybe in your mind you're not quite sure what they mean. And they are, I'm going to hold this really steady because i got coffee running through me, uh, the words inerrant there and infallible, right? There you go. And, and people are often wondering what they mean because they sound similar. Inerrant basically means that the Bible contains no errors. And when I say that, that there's nothing misleading in the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't record when people are, make, are, are lying or saying mistruths. It's just saying that in the original manuscripts, and if you have a question what I mean by the original manuscripts, there are no errors in the Bible, right? That, that's what inerrant means. Infallible means basically that... When the Bible is correctly applied and interpreted, it will not lead you into error, right? So that's how they're, they're related, but they, they overlap, but that's how the two are different. It contains no errors in them, and it will not lead you into error. And that's what we mean by inerrant and infallible. And because it's those two things, it is the trustworthy foundation for a coherent worldview and an understanding of reality. Now, God's word, how does it do that? God's word gives us the shape and the contours of our lives through its preaching and teaching and our living and thinking. This value helps our Christian faith from slipping into relativism and thus liberalism. Now, when it comes to scripture, scripture has a lot to say about itself. You heard earlier in the service a reading from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, 10 through 13. Uh, during the pastoral prayer, Scott read from Psalm 19, 7 through 11. And if you are an astute Bible student or you're kind of familiar with your Bible, you might think that today we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, another profound verse in the Bible talking about the nature of the Bible. Or maybe instead of me preaching, we could just read Psalm 119, the entire thing, all 176 verses of that one chapter. I think it's interesting that the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, is all about the Bible. 
every single verse of the 176 verses that make up that chapter talks about the power, uh, the promises, the sufficiency, and the necessity and the clarity of the Bible in our lives. There's a lot of places we could go. I'm not going to actually go to preach out of any of those this morning. We're going to look at Luke chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, go to Luke chapter 4. If you're new to your Bible, it's the third book in the New Testament. Luke chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 to 15. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find it in page 807, I think, in our pew Bibles, the black one that's in front of you. And typically, this is called the temptation of Jesus, but as you'll soon hear as I read it, you'll know exactly why I wanted to talk about it when we talk about faithfulness to Scripture. So Luke chapter 4 is going to serve as our, our chapter that we're going to camp on this morning, page 807 in your pew Bibles. If you have it, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Verse 9, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went all through the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I think it's pretty obvious upon the reading why I would choose this passage. If anyone could stand on his own um, authority or, or moral authority or perspective, if anyone could stand on his own wisdom, I think we could agree it would be Jesus. But Luke chapter 4 reveals that even Jesus trusted himself to Scripture above all else, no matter what was going on in, that, in this narrative. And so in thinking about that, that made me want to dive into it a little bit more. That's one of the, the perks of being a, a preacher is whenever I got a question, I can spend hours in the week figuring it out. And so I said, let's, let's look into Luke chapter 4 because I had given thought to the, the other standards when we think about Scripture. But I think there's something here that, that it's really pressing for our time. Now, in order to kind of get that, I think sometimes t backing up and getting the larger context is important. If you know the, the passages, in Luke chapter 3, I mean, it's an amazing contrast between Luke 3 and 4. In Luke chapter 3, I mean, the, the gates of heaven open wide. Jesus is declared, declared the Son of God. He's baptized. It's like there's no stopping him now. And then immediately when we get into Luke chapter 4, the mouth of hell opens wide. His claim to be the Son of God is being challenged. And it seems like the wheels are about to fall off as he's alone facing the devil. 
Luke 4 really is, is an anti-Eden, isn't it? Except it's where man and Satan face off, except this time it's not happening in a lush garden with every tree to eat for food. It's happening in a barren wasteland where there's nothing but hunger and want. It is an anti-Eden. As a matter of fact, not since Genesis 3 ever has there been such a pivotal showdown where literally everything is on the line. And we all know who lost round one and the consequence of that. Every tear, every heartache, every evil, every misery, every wickedness and transgression we have experienced in the world, that you have experienced, that a world has experienced, was the result of losing round one. And in some sense, as I was thinking about it, actually it's still in my notes, that this is round two, but this morning I was thinking, no, this is not even round two. This is actually round three. And the reason I say that is Adam blew it, and we were all plunged into his destruction. And there was a second shot. Exodus chapter 4, remember? The, 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 na- the Hebrew nation, they're a slave nation. And God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Set my son free. And I for- totally forgot that, yes, Israel was the second shot. They were given the law. They were given the promises. They were the new humanity. And that went sideways real quick. So here's round three. Thankfully, and you know, we won round three. Round one was lost by Adam. Round two was lost by the children of Israel. Humanity now has a new representative, and this time we don't lose because it's Jesus. Now, when we say that our value is being faithful to Scripture, if you look on that that passage on screens, there is a lot there. And so this morning, I'm only going to focus on one concept because there's just no way we're going to get to all of it, and that is this that's highlighted in red. That scripture offers us a coherent worldview and an understanding of reality. And I think that that is so important for our times. That we have this coherent worldview. Because I think most people, especially in the world and oftentimes in the church, people don't, they have a worldview. You all have a worldview. It's a view of the world. But a lot of times it's all what we say in Hawaii, kapakai, mixed up. And I think we're seeing some of the chaos in our world. But scripture offers a coherent worldview. And because of that, there's an understanding of reality. And that comes because God's word gives us the contour and shape of our lives. And I actually think that's what we're seeing here in Luke chapter 4. So this morning, the message is not an apologetic on why we should believe the Bible. Yeah, that, That's not the point of this message. I've actually done things like that before. Talked about the manuscript evidence. Talked about the statistical probability of the Bible. Right, that, that it was written in three different languages over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, many of whom did not know each other for all walks of life. And yet there's a consistent narrative running through the entire book. Um, We're we're not going to get in there. We're not going to talk about the prophecies, about 300 that I'm aware of in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New Testament, right? Uh, And partly because it's not that that's not important. We've just done that before. And for a large part, it's going to sound shocking, the, the fact that the Bible is the most unique piece of literature on the planet is no longer an argued, debated issue even among scholars and academics. That's different than saying they believe it, right? Two different claims, In the late 19th century, early 20th century, everyone was writing about uh, higher criticism, redaction criticism, how the Bible's not really what it's ought to be, it's a special book. No one's doing that anymore because they've all realized this is something very unique. 
again, they're not saying they believe it to be the word of God. They are just no longer challenging it as the most unique piece of literature that humanity has in all of its corpus libraries, right? That, that's not the point. What I'm actually talking about is what I see Jesus doing here, how the Bible sets up a framework of reality that, that, that helps him navigate what the enemy is doing because the enemy is very subtle here. So how we're going to look at these 15 verses in these three ways. Number one, how scripture balances out the physical needs and physical reality of our life, right? Number two, almost like a step up from that, uh, there's more to our lives than just physical needs and, and emotional needs. There's an existential part of our lives, a longing to be greater, a longing for something deep within us, right? If you read existential literature, they're always talking about how we need meaning and purpose, and that's true. And I think scripture reorients that for us. And then finally, how uh, scriptural truth of life is made known in scripture. Now, that's a lot. And, and so we're going to touch on most of those, or, or all three of them in, in some way, shape, or form. So let's look at them one at a time. How the physical needs of life are rebalanced by scripture. Um, in the Roadiever house, when my kids were younger, if dinner or lunch was getting late, these were the kind of conversations. Mom, when are we going to have dinner? I'm starving. To which dad, knowing how busy mom is, I would come to her defense and said, you haven't starved a day in your life. Just calm down. To which they would respond, dad, it's been like three hours since I last ate. Right? Parents can say amen to that. It is amazing how hunger, physical needs, start to change our perception of reality. When I was 19, relatively new Christian, a lot of big decisions I had to make. So I thought, I, I learned about fasting, so I'm, I'm going to get in on that. I'm going to fast. I was really ambitious. For seven straight days. Now, to be honest, I ate a little salad every day. So it's not like a full-on fast. I'm, I guess I'm not as holy as maybe it sounds, but... Seven days, I was going to give myself to prayer, reading the word, and not eating, other than my little salad. So on day six of this fast, as I'm finishing up my little salad, and my friends, they don't really, you know, they knew at this time what I was doing, but they were not sympathetic. They're finishing up their katsu plate, chicken katsu plate lunch, you know, they got mac salads, shoyu on the rice, kimchi on the side, and, and half of them are just like leaving portions of it behind. And I'm sitting there famished. I mean, I could have like eaten everything they left behind, and if, actually, I would have eaten them if they got close enough to me. I was hungry. So when I read that Jesus did not eat for 40 days, I can understand at this point he's probably close to death. That the wilderness locusts to him look like sausage with wings. That he is at the point of physical exhaustion. And it's just at that point that the, that the enemy comes to him and says, Hey, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Now, here's the question, and this is why I like talking to people who are new to reading the Bible. Because if you've been reading your Bible a while, what you do, you don't realize this, is you start to impose your understanding onto the Scripture, which is not bad. But then we lose the visceral arresting effect of so much of what's in here. Because here it is. Here's the question. Why is that considered a temptation that Jesus has to refuse? If you ask me... That's like the most sensible thing to, to do right there. Eat, for goodness sakes. Right? It's been 40 days. Just eat something. But why does Jesus say no and, and recognize it as a temptation to refuse? Because if you had any friend that didn't eat that long, that's what you would tell them to. So why is this a temptation? And here's where I think it's coming from. 
you, you, you need to understand that Jesus must have been reflecting, and partly we know this because his response is made up from Scripture. I think it was Deuteronomy, is it Deuteronomy 8? So he's probably thinking of Deuteronomy 8, 1 Kings 17, Deuteronomy 6, uh, Exodus 16. In each of these passages, like 1 uh, Kings 17, Elijah's in the wilderness, and God literally, literally sends the ravens with food to feed the prophet because he's starving. In Deuteronomy 8 and, and Exodus 16, the entire nation of Israel is out wandering in the wilderness for years. They're hungry, and they're grumbling against God, and yet God in his mercy, he sends to them what? Manna and quail. And so it's really clear, as Jesus is reflecting on Scripture, that God providing food and the necessities that his people need is not a problem at all. He's thinking of at least, I, I, wasn't, I couldn't think of any more. I'm sure there are probably others, but at least three instances where God supernaturally sends food for his people. Remember in Luke 4, the very beginning, what does it say? That the spirit, that God sent him into the wilderness and apparently without a sack lunch, right? So God had sent him into the wilderness and chose not to provide any food for him. Whatever the reason is, we don't know, but he does not have food. He's out there for 40 days. God could give him the food. He doesn't. And so the enemy says, you're hungry, for goodness sakes, just get a sandwich, eat something, turn these stones into bread. We know our Lord could do it, and he did do it, right? We have the accounts of the, the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000. Heck, Jesus doesn't need rocks. He could make food materialize out of thin air. But he says no. In effect, when he, says, when he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, Jesus is basically, I'm, I'm not going to be like the, the representatives of humanity before. I am not going to grumble. I'm not going to fight and grumble against the Lord or take matters into my own hands. Rather, I will trust myself to God. Two th comments on that. Number one, Jesus has never been a savior that uses his divinity for his own personal benefit. Never in the Gospels do you ever read of Jesus and the disciples being a hot Judean desert, and the Lord says, God, this is hot. We need some shade. Bam, banyan tree. Let's take a break, guys. Let's rest, cool off, and then we'll go out there and minister. He never does that. His whole life was solely focused on fulfilling the will of the Father, nothing else. And clearly, for some reason, unknown to him, it wasn't the will of the Father to provide him food, yet he's being tempted to go outside the will of the Father for his own satisfaction. Get this. Here's where the application point gets to us. Not even for a legitimate need, like feeding himself, would Jesus attempt to grant his physical satisfaction outside the will of God. He would rather trust God than meet his own need at that point. Now, there's a lot here, but one thing that I thought this kind of pulls out is that Jesus is proving that he is the representative of humanity, that being a human being is much more than being driven by our physical wants and desires, our instincts, our drives. We're not just animals. We're not just physical things. There's more to us than our human drives. The human experience is not just the satisfaction of our bodies. Unlike every other created thing, we were made in the image of God. One of the tragedies of our time, the, the, the age of modernity, is that our lives have been reduced to the physical. You're, just, you're not much more than just an evolved animal. And a, a lie that goes with that, that maybe you can spot in our culture, is the lie that the granting of your physical appetites, whether that's literally a physical appetite or metaphorical, 
The granting of those physical appetites is necessary for your life to have meaning and fulfillment. In other words, unless you get what you just desire physically or sexually or emotionally or whatever, you just won't be fulfilled. The granting of your physical appetites is necessary to be a fulfilled individual. And Jesus is saying that's not how this works. That's not what the human existence is about. And friends, ask anyone who's an Alcoholics Anonymous. Ask ask anyone who's consumed by sexual lust of, of any sort that the mere granting of a physical appetite is not enough. As a matter of fact, a, a biblical understanding of addiction that the Bible teaches us is that any physical appetite unanchored, unhinged from our true natures can never be satisfied. It's what's called the lust of the flesh. Which is why if you're looking to alcohol to satisfy you, drinking more of it does not satisfy it. Ultimately, it actually leads to more desire for it, more lack of fulfillment. That's you need more of it. In the same way of sexual perversion, satisfying sexual perversion does not quell it. It increases it. Our physical appetites, unanchored from our natures, do not lead to satisfaction. That's one of the lies of our society. And we see that in what Jesus is saying is that's not how this works. right? Now, granted, maybe unrestrained sexual appetite or alcoholism may not be where many of you are at. So let me frame it in a way maybe you've heard something. Maybe you've said it yourself. Maybe you've heard people say it. It's different. It's not the exact thing that's happening, but it's very similar underneath the surface. Have you ever heard someone say or said yourself, doesn't God want me to be happy above anything else? What's wrong with wanting to be happy? Is that really different than Satan saying, doesn't God want you to eat above everything else? What's wrong with, ha- with wanting to have food? It's the same thing. As a matter of fact, I think we can make the case that having physical food is more important to your life than your sexual appetites. Right? Or other things, your desire for happiness. And yet even physical food, Jesus says, that's not what this life is about. As important and as legitimate as food is, <coughs> excuse me, uh-oh, um, it's not as important as trusting God. And to be clear, to be clear, God would rather you be happy than miserable, just as he'd rather you have food than experience hunger, but not in defiance of his will or outside of his plans. And we see that vividly here. Jesus is saying human experience is more than our base desires. Life comes by trusting God, not ourselves, even when the need is legitimate. Now, I'm going to wrap up a little bit of an application to that point, but let me work through the temptation, the other temptations as well. So, so put a pin in that, and let's move on to the next one. So if, it's, if life is more than just base physical appetites, those kinds of things, maybe there's something more like meaning, fulfillment, significance. And so in some ways, the second temptation is similar to the first, isn't it? It's similar in that it is a legitimate request. What is the devil doing? Saying, hey, Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world, they can be yours, Jesus. All the flags of the nation, they'll wave in your honor. All the knees will bow. All the the tongues will sing your praise. Right? Here's the question again. Why is that 
considered a temptation that Jesus has to refuse. Now, here's what happens. You and I read that, and we instinctively know, yeah, that's not good for anybody to have all the glory and honor and power. In fact, it's not even good for one man to rule a church, which is why the Bible puts forth the plurality of elders, let alone for a man or a woman to rule one country. That's why we believe in democracy, let alone for a one man or one woman to rule all the nations of the earth. Because... So we see that and we go, yeah, it's a good one to, it's a good temptation to deny. But here's the, here's the thing. Why is that inappropriate for Jesus? Isn't that exactly what he came to do? Isn't that the reason Jesus was born? To rule righteously over the world. Doesn't the scripture say that one day every nation, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord? This seems exactly like what God wants him to do. So why does Jesus rebuke Satan? Right? And you, if you've read this passage, you already kind of know the answer. And that's the job of, a, of good preaching. My, not to tell you anything new, but just to point out what's there that you already know but didn't know. Look at verse 7. What's the caveat? As long as you worship me, the devil says. In other words, here's, here's what's going on. You can have all that you were born for. And you can avoid the cross. You can avoid the suffering. You can bypass the loneliness and the betrayal and the pain and and all of that. All you have to do is just worship me. That's it. And you can have the very thing you were born for. Just worship me and you can have all that God promises with none of the suffering. You get the crown without the cross. That sounds like a good deal. Now, don't, don't make the, I forget which heretic it was, but, but don't make the, oh, Jesus would never think that. He's Jesus, of course. He was, yes, he was fully God, but he was fully man. And you, if you didn't think he realized this was a hard thing, you'd be wrong because what does John 17 tell us? What is Jesus doing in John 17? He's crying out, Father, if there's any other way this can happen, if there's any other way that this cup can be taken from me, Take it from me. There was no other way. But to be thought, to be thinking here, to be enthroned as king. He was born for it. And Jesus knew, unlike Adam, unlike Israel, unlike every prophet and king that came before, he could rule righteously. He was born for that. He knew he was the one to bring the answer. This, on my sabbatical, one of the books I read for fun was The Lord of the Rings. Any Lord of the Rings fans out there? Oh, Tolkien was brilliant. The ring. Notice in the story, nobody who wanted the ring wanted it to be an evil Sauron. Oh, everybody wanted the ring because they saw this power. I could do so much good with it. I can change the world. I can reorder things. I can make the wrongs right. I can bring justice to the land. And this will be the power to make it happen. And they would put the ring on and what happened? The power, no matter how well intended, destroyed them. And Jesus was being offered the ring. Now, I'm not sure Tolkien was thinking about Luke 4, right? But Tolkien was a devoted Catholic, and he was a theologian. He knew all this stuff going on. Jesus was the only one who literally could take the ring. 
And actually he does, right? But that's, that's another passage of scripture. What's going on here is Jesus knew he could rule righteously. That's what he was born to do. But here's the dilemma. He also knew that if he reached out and took that outside the will of the Father, he would forfeit the very thing that qualified him in the first place. And that is he lived for the will, glory, and purposes of the Father above all else, even his own. And so he knew, even though this is my right, I was, I was born for this, this is what I'm supposed to do. If I take it outside of God's will, I forfeit the very thing that qualifies me for it. So, 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 so which is why Jesus says in verse 8, we'll unpack this a little bit more later. He says, no, you will worship the Lord your God alone and serve him. Okay, we'll tie this worship concept back into the temptation a little bit. But notice what Jesus is doing in this second response. If in response one, the first temptation says that humanity is more than our physical based desires and natures, which corrects the, the error of naturalism in our world, which basically says we're just physical beings, we're evolved animals. Jesus' response in temptation two prevents us from crashing into the other ditch, which is the ditch of humanism that says we have the right to whatever glory, whatever aspiration and renown we long for because we're at the top of the pile, we're human beings. And Jesus corrects both of those problems. We're more than just the creation. We're made in the image of God, but we are not God. We're this in, this in between. And so he quotes again from Deuteronomy, this time chapter 8. But here's something I want to be clear, and I'm going to move on to third, temptation 3. You and I, we were made for glory. We were made to create. We were made for renown. After all, whose image were we made in? God's. We were made for this very thing. But to pursue those outside God's will is to worship those things instead of God. And then Jesus saw that and he, and he turned it down. Third temptation, verses 9 through 12. And this last attempt shows that Satan's a pretty smart guy in Hawaii and what we say called Akamai. He, he, he recognizes both times Jesus comes back with scripture. Not just scripture, but Jesus understands the, the, the implications and the depth of what's happening. So what does Satan do in this third attempt? Notice now he quotes scripture back to Jesus. And he quotes Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is a very famous wisdom psalm that celebrates God's protection, his, his care and deliverance of the faithful man. Right? And so what Satan says is, he's implying as he's speaking to, to Jesus, that Psalm 90, 91 is speaking about you. You are the faithful man who will obey God above all else. So just do it. He will protect you. Jump off the pinnacle. Show the world that God is for you. And many scholars believe there was this kind of messianic overtones in the temptation. Show the world, Jesus, who you really are. You're not one of these hacks out there. You really are the son of God. Now, which is ironic, right? Because, and this is how the devil works. All through, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, no, you're the son of God. Now jump off and let God show you how wonderful he loves you. And this is not the way the enemy works. Yeah, that's sin. Go for it. Do that thing. Do that thing. You, you, you deserve it. You deserve it. And as soon as you do it, you sinner. God does not love you, right? That's how Satan works. He's questioning Jesus, and yet they're trying to prompt him. So... He says, throw yourself off. You are the righteous man that scripture talks about. He will protect you, and you can show the world God's faithfulness. You can show the world you are his salvation. Wouldn't that be wonderful? 
But Jesus' power wasn't going to be shown in carnival tricks like this. His power, as you know, was going to be shown when he gave up all power at the cross. Not by supermanning it down from the temple heights. God had not ordained for for him to be revealed as the Son of God in that way. You know what that tells me, friends? Even the highest and best ends does not justify violating God's purposes and plan. Even the highest and best ends we may have does not justify violating God's will. And and this message is is essential to us. And and, and Jesus puts it straight out there in Deuteronomy 6. He quotes, you're not going to test the Lord your God. You know, wild swan dives test the Lord our God just as much as diving into relationships that do not square with God's word. Just as misapplying or, or ignoring God's scripture with disastrous consequence and then crying out for God to save us before we hit rock bottom does not bring him glory, is not godliness, it's plain foolishness. But how often do we do those kinds of things? We just either ignore what God teaches or we twist what God says or we expect him to bail us out. Right? Yeah, to be clear, God specializes in picking up the pieces of our lives. That's totally clear. But we don't test God through rationalized disobedience. Now, that's very clear. And Jesus says, you're not to test the Lord, you're God. He is God after all. We're not. So l- let me step back here and make some practical applications of these in our closing minutes. What do each of the temptations share in common? And I I use the key word in each of them. What what do they each share in common? The key word I used was they were all legitimate. Let me go so far as to say every temptation shared in common, these were all good things. Every, all of them are satisfying real physical needs, right? Satisfying our needs, fulfilling our purpose, showing God's faithfulness to a watching world. These are all good. None of what Satan comes to Jesus to tempt him with is in any way a violation of the Ten Commandments, right? As a matter of fact, the Ten Commandments in some way sanction the very things that he's being tempted to do. What's interesting is that tells us that the nature of sin is not what we often think it is, which means faithful to Scripture, being faithful to Scripture is probably not what we think it is as well. So let me unpack each of those briefly. In each, let first the nature of sin. In each instance, what does the devil do? He elevates a real, legitimate, even godly impulse to an ultimate place. You notice that? All of these were legitimate things, good things, even we might say godly things. And what the devil does is he takes it and he elevates it into an ultimate place. And the path forward, all that needed to happen was, hey, just compromise a little bit about God's word, God's will, or maybe ignore that part or avoid. But that's all that was necessary. Here's, if you're a note taker, here's a hot take for you. And, and this is a theme of a lot of the preaching here at Christ Community. This is something that you, you'll, you'll hear woven through things a lot. Whenever a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, and, and let me twist it a little bit so it more, has more punch, it will become a demonic thing in your life. Whenever a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it will become a demonic thing in your life. That is the nature of sin. Now, how many times have you had conversations with friends, I know I've had them, where you hear people say things like, look, I used to believe in God, I used to be like you, and then my kid grew up and became an addict. 
if God was real, why would he allow that? I can't believe in him. Or I, I used to believe in God, but then I lost my job and things got real hard. My wife had to go back to work. I couldn't afford to pay for my kids' college. If God loved me, said he was going to take care of me, why didn't he? I don't believe anymore. Or I used to believe in God. My wife and I were involved in, in church or my boyfriend or girlfriend, and then they had an affair or slept, got in bed with somebody else from the church. If that's how Christians are, I'm not going to believe. Or I used to believe in God, but then I got sick. And no matter how hard I prayed, no matter how hard the church prayed, I never got better. If that's the kind of life God wants for me, then I'm not going to believe in him. Right? You've heard things like that. Now, let me ask you this. Is there anything inherently wrong or sinful with some of the things they talked about? Is there something wrong with wanting your kids to turn out okay? No, of course not. Is there something wrong with wanting to have faithfulness in your marriage? No. To have financial freedom, to have the means to provide? Absolutely not. To have good health? No, there's nothing wrong with any of that. As a matter of fact, those are the many blessings that God brings into our lives, isn't it? But, uh, but underneath, here's what's actually being said. It's not being said through their mouths, but it's being said with their lives. Okay, God, here's the deal. Here, here's how we're going to do this thing. I'll love you. You're pretty good, pretty cool. And, but here's the thing. What you need to do is you need to give me this thing here. When you, as long as you're providing that, I'm in. You don't provide that, I'm out. That's the working relationship. So, friends, what are they really worshiping there? They're worshiping their kids. They're worshiping the good thing, health. Marital faithfulness, relational fidelity, right? None of those things are inherently wrong. They're God's blessings to us. But what they're really saying is, God, you're not God. You're the means to fulfill the real God in my life. And so often, God will use those very kinds of things to show us, I'm not the God in your life that you say I am. And, and, I, I, and I can be. But so often, the good thing becomes an ultimate thing and prevents us from seeing the real thing, which is a gracious, glorious God. So I'm not saying those, are, those don't matter. I'm just saying the majority of time, sin will work in our, in our lives in a way we often don't think. And that's taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing in your life. Instead of what should be, which is God, his plan, his character, his glory. Likewise, being faithful to Scripture means probably means something we don't tend to think of it. It's not about using or talking about Scripture all the time in your life or you know, using it on your Instagram feed or putting it on your coffee mugs or even memorizing a ton of it, right? Or, or it, we can almost make Scripture, in that sense, uh, an idol. Like, the more Bibles you have, the better off you will be in your house or something like that, you know? Like, and you see it in our society all the time, right? Um, especially in those vampire movies. I don't know what they do, why they think this. Like the vampire shows up and what do they do? They hold up a Bible, right? As if a, a leather book's going to do anything against the prince of darkness or something like that. But that. And what happens in the movie, though? Usually the vampire recoils back, right? But really, come on. That's making an idol out of the Bible. See, that's the, that's the tricky thing. We can make an idol of something so awesome and just make it superstitious. Being faithful to Scripture doesn't mean that you know a lot about it. It means that it, it's woven, interwoven into the fabric of your life such that exactly what Jesus did, when you're faced with the subterfuge of our culture and the deception and the half-truths, you know how to navigate it because you usually got the wrong half. It's so part of you that it's not like you no longer look at the Bible like um, an encyclopedia. I remember when I was a kid, they told me that cute acrostic uh, Bible 
Does anybody, anybody here remember what that acrostic meant? Basic instructions before leaving earth, right? So it's kind of cute. So basically, if you ever had a problem, you'd go to your concordance and you'd kind of like relational conflict. Okay, R, R. Okay, mm. Okay, second opinions, chapter 5. That's what I'm going to do. You know what I mean? So, so you look at it like this, this, this handbook. That's not faithful to scripture necessarily. What it's more like, it's not an encyclopedia. Imagine it's like glasses, it's glasses that you put on. It may not give you the answers you want, but it helps you see the landscape with clarity as you walk through life. Being faithful to Scripture, and this is really important as we are in a post-Christian world where the prevailing views are no longer consciously grounded in God's Word, right? But they're still there. Being faithful to Scripture will mean... Will, will not just mean explaining the Bible to ourselves and to the world, but more importantly, being able to explain ourselves and the world through the Bible. Let me say that again. Faithfulness to Scripture does not mean merely explaining the Bible to ourselves or to the world, but explaining ourselves to ourselves through the Bible. What's the difference? One is just a matter of information. Here's facts about the Bible, data points, whatever. There you go. That's what you need. The other is about interpretation. As we go into a post-Christian culture, people don't want to just know bits and pieces about the Bible. They want to know, can the Bible make sense of me? Can the Bible make sense of the world we live in? Can the Bible make sense of the values I hold? That's the job we have. That's what being faithful to Scripture means. So that when we encounter half-truths, we don't get sucked into them. Just like Jesus was encountering half-truths. Everything Satan said was somewhat true. But Jesus knew it, that he got the wrong part of the wrong half. So like when the world says, for example, doesn't God want you to be happy above all else? You kind of go, oh, that does sound true because God wants my joy and pleasure and all of that. But I think it's more true to say that God wants me wholly above all else and whether or not I choose to be happy, that's going to be up to me. Right? So there's some truth there, but not really. When the world says something like, look, you, you'll only be fulfilled when you achieve your dreams and realize your potential. And you go, that kind of sounds good. But I think the Bible says I have to realize that I'm actually a sinner in need. And I have Christ who achieved that need. And I'm fulfilled because I've been forgiven and God is faithful. That sounds more of a biblical worldview. Or finally, when the world says, wouldn't it be great when everyone knows that you, how great you are? Wouldn't it be the best when everyone knows how great you are? And you say, oh, that sounds good, but... I think it's best when everyone knows how great God is. So you hear the half-truths of our culture because if this is the way Satan comes after our Lord, it's not going to be different for you. And you can hear the half-truth and go, I know why so many people get sucked into that, but here's what Scripture really means on that. I conclude with this. Um, Archimedes, Archimedes was a Greek mathematician and philosopher. He didn't create the lever, but he was able to uh, maximize our under the mathematics of leverage and apply it to engineering, architecture, and even military warfare. And he's famous for a quote, give me a lever and a fulcrum and I'll move the world. And philosophers have created a saying called the Archimedean point, which means there's a place in time, a point of perspective that gets, allows you to see everything on the outside, outside of the situation, so you know how to move what's inside. Friends, that's exactly what scripture is. It's the Archimedean point. It's something that comes from the outside that helps us to understand everything on the inside. 
being faithful to scripture, it's not about how much of it we've mastered, but how much of it masters us. And that's a value we have to constantly pursue at Christ Community Church. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you, and I'm just thankful, Lord, that I know so many of us, Father, have failed to love you because we have pursued physical appetites. We have failed that test. We have proclaimed we're nothing but animals as we've given in to our sexual lust, our anger, our food, or whatever it is, and we have failed. But yet we have a man who represented us who succeeded. Father, I pray that you'd forgive us for that. Forgive us, Father, for trying to fulfill our longings for glory and power and recognition and acceptance. When you made us to be your image bearers, that was a gift, but in the way you intend it. And so often we try to achieve our satisfaction and our glory outside of your will. Would you forgive us for that? Father, forgive us for misapplying or ignoring your word and assuming your grace. Thank you that you forgive us for that. Thank you that Jesus Christ withstood all those temptations perfectly and stands in our place as our substitute. Father, thank you that you have, you can, and have forgiven us of that because we hide ourselves in Christ. He is our representative. He is our sacrificial lamb. He is our savior, and we're grateful for that. Father, help us to be grounded in scripture. Help us to make it our foundation that we build our lives upon individually and as a church, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.